0: To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com film filmdaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash filmdaily.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for September 18th, 2017. On today's show, we're gonna be talking about John Wick, Chapter Three. We'll be talking about John Hamm being cast as Boba Fett. Jamie Lee Curtis returns to the Halloween franchise, and some intriguing Westworld casting. We'll also talk about the director's cut of the the movie Stephen King's It, and in our feature presentation, our own Y Tran Bowie will introduce us to her new segment where she tackles horror films. She's been. Scared of horror films for years, and she is finally ready to confront them with it. So, we'll be talking about that. Uh, this is Peter Sarda, and on today's show, I have with me slash film writer Huay Tran Bui.
2: Hey, everyone,
1: and slash film managing editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello, guys. I'm ready for the weekend. Even though this is Monday's episode, we're recording this on Friday afternoon. And uh tonight I'm going to Halloween horror nights. Uh the Ooh, opening fun. of Halloween horror nights, so I'm excited to experience that and you'll you'll see coverage on the site in probably uh Monday slash Tuesday on Slash home Daily. But let's let's jump into the news. Uh John Wick chapter three has been officially announced. We have a release date. Jacob, what do we know?
3: Well, Lionsgate and Summit have announced that John Wick Chapter 3 will arrive on May 17th, 2019, and this is an interesting release date because this is a far cry from where they released the first two movies. The first one was an October release in 2014, and Chapter 2 came out earlier this year in February, and both movies were hits. The first one was a modest hit, making $88 million worldwide against a budget, I think, of $15 million around that area. The second one cost maybe twice that, 30 million, but it made 171 million worldwide. The word got out between movies but how good John Wick was. But Jacob, so the second yeah.
1: movie created a cinematic universe. Cinematic universes <laughs> need summer release dates. They they do,
3: and this is what I'm very curious to see is is John Wick big enough to hang in the summer? I feel like it's, it's almost like the ideal series to be hanging out in February and October where things are a little bit slower, where it can really clean up and have the spotlight. But apparently they have the faith in John Wick being able to occupy the same month as, right now, Disney's live-action Aladdin reboot. And, the, and truth be told, I think the timing here is noteworthy. This or this announcement comes days after Lucasfilm uh, moved Star Wars Episode Nine out of this month into December of 2019. So I think Lionsgate saw an opportunity and said, you know what, Star Wars is gone, let's move John Wick in here. And they just... We're going to try to elevate him up and see how it works because if word keeps getting out that people like John Wick, and everyone I talk to, when I, when I first saw John Wick, nobody saw it. By the time John Wick 2 came out, everybody had seen John Wick. And that's anecdotal, I know. Mm-hmm. But I feel like they're counting on the fact that word of mouth has made John Wick from being the sort of little action franchise I could into something that is spawning a comic book and a spin off movie and a TV series set in the same universe. I feel like they, if this is the last. John Wick chapter which they've implied but they want to set up larger universe I mean it's a smart business to try to get them into the big guys at the same time um, I'm wondering if Peter and HG have any thoughts on this maybe I'm being sentimental but I kind of like John Wick being a little small scrappy thing existing in the lower months of the year what do you guys think about being a summer movie
1: um well, first of all, I want to point out that they're not just going into a month with Disney's live action Aladdin, but they're also going into a month that begins yeah, so Avengers 4 is coming out at the beginning of that month. Um, but it seems like for the most part that month is filled with like kind of so far at least on the schedule Movies that are appealing to a younger audience, like the Ugly Dolls uh, animated movie or the Minecraft animated movie, and Aladdin, um, which I guess is a family movie. So, right now, as it looks, you know, May could use an adult action film. But I agree with you. I I would like I like my John Wick to be scrappy and in <laughs> kind of like those uh those months where we're usually like looking for more entertainment do you know what I mean like we we need something in those months what about you hd
2: yeah i've always associated john wick with the colder months of the year just because the films themselves have a very cold distant um feel to them and they're often set in the colder weather months as well and yeah they're they're not quite as um bombastic and uh energetic I guess you would say it's energetic but not quite as bombastic as the mainstream films you would see released in May and in the summer so i fear that it could be overlooked but word of mouth is a strong factor so we'll see
3: i would love it if john wick becomes bigger than ever in the summer i i wrote this some of you may know this i wrote a 4000 word article about john wick 2 <laughs> earlier this year and these movies are uh, the most South Korean movies to ever come out of Hollywood in terms of tone. I, I've seen a lot of South Korean thrillers over the years attending film festivals, and this very specific, weird, wacky, violent, darkly humorous tone. And John Wick, by accident or design, captures that feeling of South Korean cinema in a way that no other movie franchise come out of Hollywood has. And if that can be brought this summer, and if we can essentially trick mainstream audiences into watching really twisted, uh, really unique action series that people are are really coming in line with, then I think that's a great thing. But at the same time, I don't know. I I think John. I I'm worried this may be the end of John Wick if it gets crushed by the Avengers. But I'm just I'm just being a pessimist there. Am I?
1: Uh, I mean, well, you said this is the final installment of the Keanu Reeves trilogy, anyways. So, I mean, we'll have to see. Um, I I don't believe that, anyways. If if this movie does, uh, you know, summer blockbuster box office, they're they're going to keep this going. I mean, Lionsgate needs the money, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but let's move on from that to Star Wars. John Hamm. Uh, the actor uh, f- who was the star of uh, Mad Men has been cast as Boba Fett. Uh, don't get up and don't get angry just yet. It, it, it's a casting announcement for a Star Wars book adaption, a uh, audio book adaption. HT, uh, you wrote the article for the site. What do we know?
2: So this audiobook uh is called From a Certain Point of View. It's going to be released as both a Regular book and an audiobook, um, and it's in honor of the franchise's 40th anniversary. It will offer 40 stories written by 40 authors, um, and the audiobook will also feature an all star cast, including John Hamm, Neil Patrick Harris, uh, and others. John Hamm is the most standout uh, name in this because he'll be voicing a notoriously Stoic character, Boba Fett, who we've only heard maybe one or two lines from before um, in Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back, but through voice distortion. So we're not sure what his real voice actually sounds like. And apparently, his real voice sounds like John Hamm. Uh, so it will be released um, in, on, on October 3rd in ebook, hardcover, and audiobook. And we'll have Audio narrators for each of the stories, hence the large uh, audiobook cast. Uh, so we'll get to see, hopefully, um, Boba Fett's voice without the distortion, unless John Hamm ha- get plays yeah, the character well, with some. Uh,
1: yeah, why would you cast John Hamm if you were just going to put distortion on his voice? <laughs> but we, exactly. we we talked about this book yesterday on the podcast, and uh, this book seems so exciting for me. This is an in, you know a book filled with anthology stories of these lesser known characters from A New Hope. Uh, the Boba Fett story seems like the least interesting to me out of the bunch, uh, but it's exciting that they're going to be spending the money to have like real actors, you know, voice these audiobook stories it almost makes me want to see this like it'd be great if lucasfilm could turn this into like an animated like direct to dvd kind of like release i i would love to see these stories animated um i guess I, I guess i just want to see a star wars anthology movie and uh, it's since reading these plot synopses, uh, as i spoke with you yesterday jacob uh, what do you think of john ham as uh, boba fett
3: John Hamm, even though he's actually a really funny actor, when people cast him in comedies, when he is playing more serious roles, he has a a natural arrogance to him. As you especially see in characters like Don Draper and Mad Men, where it's an arrogance and a self confidence that everything coming out of his mouth is the right thing to be said, even when it's completely wrong. And I think that that's the right thing you need for Boba Fett, who is the most determined and deadly guy in the galaxy.
1: Yeah, he was great in Baby Driver. Um... Okay, moving on. We got some fantastic franchise casting. Jamie Lee Curtis is going to return to the Halloween franchise in Danny McBride and David Gordon Green's Halloween movie. Jacob, what do we know?
3: This is interesting for a number of reasons. Uh, As most of you probably know, Jamie Lee Curtis got her start. Like her big break was starring in 1978's Halloween, John Carpenter's horror classic and one of the best examples of a genre. And she was in the first movie, the second movie, then her character vanished for a few decades and came back for Halloween H2O, the seventh movie. And then she was killed in the opening scene of Halloween Resurrection, the 2002 sequel that's terrible, and probably the worst way they could have sent that character off. And as Diana McBride, yes, D. Dan McBride from Vice Principals and Eastbound Down, who's co-writing the screenplay with David Gordon Green, he sits there sort of picking and choosing what this is a sequel to. They say they're kind of for looking past all movies except for the first two. So it's it's not been completely explained yet, and we'll probably learn more in the weeks ahead, but it really sounds like they're essentially making a sequel to the first two movies, ignoring the rest of the movies, including the one where where Laurie Strode, Jamie Curtis's character, dies, and are making another, what we like to call a rebootquel, which is a reboot and a sequel all in once. So much like how Star Wars brought back Han Solo to kill him off, I think they're bringing back Laurie Strode to kill her off to keep the franchise going. But I do wonder if this means Michael Myers is going to be 60 years old. Maybe. I'm not sure how Jamie Lee Curtis is, but he'll also have aged a number of decades. Uh, Peter, are you a Halloween fan? What what do you think about this?
1: I'm not a huge fan of Halloween. I've seen all the films. I like uh, the first couple. Um, I mean, I'm I'm loving that Hollywood is doing these kind of like legacy equals or what did you call it? A re
3: reboot calls cool is, is another reboot word clothes. i've heard used.
1: Um, it seems like they're taking the i mean this is probably a bad example but the Terminator Genesis kind of line of like you know just becoming a sequel of the first two and ignoring you know the bad films. Uh, and I, I think we're 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 going to see a lot of movies i think do that in, upcoming um, but yeah i'm i'm interested to see this because It seems like they're not, at least from what we understand, they're not planning this as a franchise. They're just planning this as a one-and-done movie, although the cynical side of me believes that, that that's not the case, but yes.
3: Well, I feel like a hypocrite because I've written many words about how I hate the idea of a sequel to Aliens that ignores Alien 3 Alien Resurrection, which has been bandied about a lot, but at the same time... Even as somebody who likes some of the middle of Halloween movies, I think 4 and 5 are junk. But they're fun. 6 is bad, but I like it. I mean, the only ones I flat out hate are Halloween Direction, the 8th movie, and Rob Zombie's uh, reboot uh, m- movies, which are just garbage. But I can't help but be excited by this. I think David Gordon Green and David Bride teaming up with a producer, Jason Blum, of Get Out and Paranormal Activity. It's such an interesting combination of talent. And John Carpenter has said that he's read the script. And he digs it and wants to do the score even we wrote an article about that as well on the site yesterday And I don't know John Carpenter has always been openly critical of the sequels and if he's on board uh, I'm and he's actually honestly on board and he's been there's no reason for him not to be honest at this point in his career Then you know what? I'm excited. Though. I want to see what you guys cook up
1: I'm not sure I trust John Carpenter's taste at this point in his, in his <laughs> career in his life um but who knows? Yeah, I want to see it. Um, moving on from Halloween to Westworld, uh, season two has cast the lost actor. And I'm, I'm wondering how we should talk about this, because there might be some people listening that have not seen Westworld season one. And talking about this might give away something in the last the the finale episode of season one.
3: Yeah. So Jacob, the... How
1: should we address this?
3: I'll tread carefully. I'll say as little as I can in terms of major spoilers. But
1: uh, well, let's say this. If you have not seen Westworld season one, shut this off and go to HBO go and start watching right now. And <laughs> we'll see you in 24 hours. But, but okay. But seriously, if you have not seen Westworld season one, uh, skip ahead, let's say three minutes.
3: Yeah. Hit, hit, hit tap a few times on your, on your iPod or iPhone, whatever you're listening on. All right. So the Japanese actor, Yuki Sanada has joined Westworld Season 2, playing a character named Musashi. This has been confirmed by TV Guide. They would not confirm who Musashi is, so there's a chance he is a park guest. But Funko already released a Musashi Funko Pop figure, vinyl figure from Comic-Con, and he's a samurai. And as those who watch the Westworld season finale know, Westworld is not the only futuristic theme park that Delos is operating even though we don't know the details, there's also a park apparently full of robotic samurai waiting to be discovered in Season 2. And it looks like we'll be meeting him via uh, Sonata's character. You may recognize Sonata from Lost, Helix, The Last Ship, uh, extent and movies like Sunshine, Speed Racer, The Wolverine, The Last Samurai. He's been acting in Japanese movies for decades as well. He's a really good actor, really good casting. And this definitely seems to be setting up something parallel to the original Westworld movie, which featured not only Westworld... But medieval world and Roman world, so when the robots ran amok, uh, it was not just cowboys killing tourists. It was also knights and Roman soldiers. So I, f- I feel like in the same way that the finale features robots becoming sentient and declaring war on humans in Westworld, I wonder if maybe they'll, they'll start gaining some allies in the adjacent theme park. What do you think, Peter?
1: I mean, that would be interesting. It would be more interesting than it, you know, being a one-sided battle, humans versus uh the the the, these new androids um i i don't know i'm i'm so excited for westworld season two but i have no idea what it's gonna be and i know we saw this trailer that was released at comic-con um and i don't know i i just have i'm i'm excited for it but i i really can't predict where they're gonna go i mean who would have thought they would have done what they did in season one uh, even though obviously Reddit predicted it, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm I'm excited, and I you know I obviously like this actor from Lost. Um, yeah, how about UHT?
2: Um, so I've only watched the first two thirds of Westworld. But what? It... <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't be I a writer got... <laughs> for
1: slash film without having watched Westworld.
2: <laughs> I watched the majority of it, but I kind of just fell off, and then forgot to catch up again. But I I'm not really spoiler averse, so I know what happens. I'm one of those people who doesn't really believe in spoiler culture. So uh yeah, I'm excited for more worlds. I thought Westworld was just so um so much of this small bubble. So I am excited for just different theme parks and possibly a inter theme park revolution. <laughs> am I
1: <assuming>? Yeah. Um <laughs> Okay, we've been talking a lot about it recently, and I apologize if, it, if there's been too much of it, but it's going to happen again today. Um, the director of it has announced that he has a director's cut, which will have 15 minutes of more footage. and also revealed that Freddy Krueger was almost in the movie. Um, first of all, I, I, I loved it, but I think it's running time. It feels a little bit long. Do we need a director's cut that's 15 minutes longer?
2: So its running time was already two hours and 15 minutes long. So that would make the director's cut about two and a half hours, which is pushing three hours. But, you know, it's a great film and it could have uh, and the potential uh, scenes that would be included in these films in this director's cut, uh, sound like they have great character development for the Loosers Club. So Andy Machete said that he has two scenes in mind that would be included in the director's cut. One scene would take place at Stanley Uris' Bar Mitzvah, um, in which he um, indicts all the adults in the room and talks about the accidents of dairy. Um, and then there's a continuation of the spitting scene at the Quarry, where they uh, apparently have... a weird and irrelevant part, but funny um, joke at the end. And another thing that mushetti considered adding, though it might not end up in the director's cut, is a reference to Stephen King's original novel, um, in which the um, the titular It is a shape-shifting entity, so he'll take the shape of uh, a villain from a horror film after the kids have seen it to scare them. And um, mushetti considered bringing Freddy Krueger in as the Um, horror film villain that would frighten the kids uh, because this takes place in the 80s instead of the 50s but he nixed the idea because he thought it was too meta with New Line involved and didn't want it to be distracting from the film
3: I I think that's the Peter. I was going to say
1: I would have liked to have seen Freddy in there I mean uh, I don't feel like it was overly nostalgic Um, it definitely didn't you know slam it in your face kind of like Stranger Things does uh, what, what do you think, Jacob?
3: I think that it would have been a bad choice. I think it would have taken audiences out of the movie in a big way. It would have been the thing people talked about instead of Pennywise or instead of the, the kids. And Yeah, uh, even though it does take the form of some movie monsters in the novel, they are more classical archetypes like werewolves and, and such, stuff that is more, even though maybe directly based on universal monsters or the horror movies of the 50s, there is still something a little more universal about them. They kind of apply across all generations. Whereas Freddy Krueger is so specific and it would have been too much of a wink in a a movie that I think otherwise really ignores winks. But but at the same time, I kind of understand why someone would want to see that. It's a really fun thing. It would have been the spirit of the book, but I I feel it was the right choice.
1: I mean, I can definitely see that argument. It it would have probably been the thing that people would have talked about and uh, distracted from the film. Um, but let's talk more about the film because we're going to go and enter our feature presentation. HT has a new series on slash film.com called the final girl. Uh, HT, tell us about your new, uh, column.
2: So as you guys know, I am pretty averse to horror films. I've kind of spent my entire life trying to avoid them as much as possible just because I, Have a really weak backbone. I am. I get scared so easily. I've talked a little bit about it on my on the podcast uh, before. Wait, wait, was
1: was there like a horror film you saw as a child that scared you and scarred you so much that you?
2: This is gonna be a weird choice, but when I was really young, I saw a leprechaun. (laughs) (laughs) Like, The War of McDavis starring Leprechaun, and it scarred me. I think I saw it when I was, like, five years old, and I was so terrified that I would imagine um, Leprechaun just appearing in my window. Or I think there was just one scene in Leprechaun where he, uh, like, comes out of someone's stomach or something or uh, something like that. There's, like, some sort of body horror that happens in Leprechaun that just really scarred me, and he kept popping up in windows. So every time I was alone and it was dark outside I would for some reason imagine leprechaun popping up and scaring me and I know it's a really stupid campy movie but <laughs> as a five-year-old kid it terrified me and it this fear kept with me until I was like well into my teens which is a really sad confession to make but um, <laughs> I don't think
1: that's sad. actually I, I, I want to pause this feature presentation for one second. To ask Jacob, what <laughs> film, as a child, were you, scared you or traumatized you as a child?
3: This is not the answer you're hoping for, Peter. It's a really stupid answer because the, the movie that traumatized me more than any horror movie was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade during the He Chose Poorly sequence huh. when the Nazi drinks from the wrong cup and he dissolves into a corpse. <laughs> more than any other horror movie, that stuck with me and gave me nightmares for years and years and years, and I just couldn't watch that scene for a long time. That's my very disappointing answer.
1: Well, (laughs) to me, it was the film The Gate, which I think was, like, on repeat on HBO at the time when I was a kid, and, uh, you know, there's this eye in the kid's hand, and there's these little creatures. And also, I think, was it Ghoulies? What's the one where, like, the person's on, like, the toilet, and something, like, the creature comes out of the toilet? Is it critters or ghoulies? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I want to see Whatever it is, to this day, if I'm in the bathroom and it's dark because, you know, uh, not to give you more insight about my house, but uh, the, the the bathroom door is, like, uh, frosted. So if I turn the light on, it it the light leaks into our bedroom, and so I don't want to wake uh, my girlfriend Kittra up. Uh, so I'll often go to the bathroom at night with the lights off, and every time I sit on the toilet... Uh, I'm I'm scared of things coming out of the toilet and eating my my butt in private areas. <laughs> uh, yes, but okay. I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've derailed our feature presentation. Uh, so, what has made you want to tackle horror?
2: So, there's something that has changed in the past couple years, um, in which there have been more. I don't want to say highbrow horror movies, but movies horror movies that deal with. Um, horror as a metaphorical or allegorical um, being, uh, something like it follows, which dealt with the titular following creature uh, being a metaphor for AIDS, for example, or for the Babadook being a metaphor for grief. And these, I kept hearing so many. And also, Get great Out was responses. one of your favorite
1: films of the year.
2: It was. See, I started watching more films after this sort of switch started happening. I'm not sure if it was a switch because I just wasn't paying attention to horror before, but I started to notice more horror films that were uh, coming into my stratosphere. And I was still too scared to watch them because I am a wimp, but I was just so curious that I started to venture more into the horror genre. So I watched uh, The Witch last year, which I absolutely loved, um, even though it was... Definitely a lot more horror um, oriented than films that I had seen before. Um, I watched *Crimson Peak* because I love Guillermo del Toro and I love gothic romance. And even though there are really terrifying image, there's really terrifying imagery of ghosts and skeletons and other such bloody things. I absolutely, absolutely adored it. I watched um, *It Comes at Night* and *Get Out*, and I've been starting to see this trend in which I'm slowly opening up to horror and um, I'm not less scared than before but I'm willing to see these stories and genres uh, because they are giving a different perspective to what kind of stories I had loved before Mm -hmm. so this brings us to it um, which is the first genuine horror film film that I've seen in theaters willingly Although my friend kind of had to drag me to it. Um, and I talked about this on the last podcast. You should probably um,
1: say right now. If you, uh, are we going to get into spoilers?
2: I won't get into, stor- into spoilers. Okay. So so if you have um, not
1: seen it, you can feel free to listen in on this conversation.
2: Yeah. yeah so um, I watched it and I absolutely loved it. And because... It gave me, like I said, a new perspective on a story that I'm familiar with and that I love, which is the coming-of-age story, and turned it into this sort of allegorical journey um, with, you know, a scary clown. And thankfully, I don't have any sort of childhood trauma of clowns like I do of leprechauns. (laughs) But um, I really enjoyed it, and I wasn't actually that terrified when I left the theater. There's usually this overwhelming feeling of terror that stays with me after I watch a horror film. Like Even after Crimson Peak, I would get scared just randomly in my bathroom or have images or um, random like Im- imaginings of these kind of creatures coming out. But after It, there was no such thing, which surprised me. I think it was because it was so ingrained in this coming-of-age story um, that was both so universal and so... Um, limited to this bubble it was obviously just story that takes place at this certain time period um, with this group of kids and I just I really liked it and I love that I could watch horror with this perspective in mind that it wasn't just about you know scaring for the sake of scares but that it could tell um, it could tell a a familiar story in a different way this
3: is what I'm most excited about for this series, HT. and we've talked about this offline a lot, is that I feel like there's this idea that among, even our own Matt Donato wrote about this on the site, about how anytime there's a horror movie that is about more than shock value or more about scares, it brings things to the table, people are in a rush to say, oh, that's not horror. It's a psychological thriller. That's, that's a drama with horror elements. That's a psychological movie. And it's just these, it, it's a way of people to try to Take a genre that's so powerful and so malleable and try to rob it of everything that makes it great. And you're right, I don't think it is as scary as other movies even released this year. It is it didn't make me jump as much. I didn't have any nightmares from it. But horror is not only about the scares, it's about using these genre elements to tell stories that can't be told in a more traditional setup. And that's why I'm really. That's why, even though know, the idea that you've been talking about, like with the Babadook and it follows and get out, I feel like a lot of people are starting to discover this. But this is also seems to be going on since the genre's creation, and that's why uh, for your next column, I'm making you go back in time a bit. You want to talk about what you're do- doing next?
2: Yeah. So my next column will be uh, back in the silent film era.
3: Oh, right after. The uh, film? They're, oh, they're, nope. Sorry. They're they're the first couple years of sound.
2: Black and White Era, classic film. Uh, I'm going to be watching a double feature, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and Bride of Frankenstein. So we're going back to the Universal horror films of the classic film studio. Yeah, and what I'm
3: looking forward to HD seeing here is that these are two movies, both from the same franchise, so to speak. For that word was even really a thing in the film industry. But Frankenstein's a Gothic horror movie, whereas Bride of Frankenstein is a thinly veiled LGBTQ uh, fable that's full of comedy and whimsy. And it's not as scary, uh, but it's, these movies despite coming out 80 years ago, really embody how flexible horror is and how it can be powerful and magical without being scary. And that's what I'm looking forward to you seeing more of.
1: And I would highly recommend after seeing these, that you watch the Abin Costello meet Frankenstein and meet the mummy. Those are, uh, those are the best they're great. I love them. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, I'm excited for this to become a sort of dialogue between me and Jacob, because Jacob was kind of the one who was pushing for this column. He knew I was not a huge horror fan, but he is a horror aficionado and wanted to kind of convert me to the genre, and I was a little bit hesitant. But I am excited to explore all the different aspects of the genre, including uh, taking a critical eye to some of the more misogynistic elements of uh, horror, like the slasher film. Um, I didn't really mention this before, but one of the other films that kind of turned me off to horror was uh, the Halloween 2007 reboot, uh, which I was forced to watch at a party. And it was a terrible experience. And I couldn't really understand why people had so much joy and pleasure from watching this debauchery and just like this really sadistic uh, film. And I don't know if I will be turned around to the slasher genre, but I'm willing to at least give them a chance.
3: Yeah, I do think with the new Halloween coming out and that being the headlines again, I definitely want to have you at some point do Halloween and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Is both of them are artfully made and terrifying and not nearly as violent as their sequels or their reputations suggest. And as somebody who I know has seen psycho and appreciates horror filmmaking that is very precise and all about atmosphere, I think that you will have even even their scarier movies, I think that you will have a lot to dig in for the for the actual filmmaking and the craft on display because even as, Sequels got all about blood and guts and I'm somebody who loved blood and guts. I, I'm, I'm HG's friends who forced her to watch Halloween 2007. <laughs> I love people being slashed to death on screens, but it's my thing But these, these movies I think are really special and go beyond the cheap thrill of a good kill. H-
1: have you ever seen uh, scream
2: I Have seen scream actually oh, wow,
3: okay. What
2: about yeah, the saw I do franchise? like the subversive elements. I have not seen any of the Saw movies.
3: I won't do that to you yet, HG. In a couple mm-hmm. years, if it's still happening, we'll talk about Saw. <laughs> I, yeah, I... I, I argue that the
1: first Saw film is a very good film. I think that franchise gets way too much crap for being torture porn. Like that film, you know, I saw it at. I've said this before in the podcast. I, I saw that at the 2004 Sundance Film Festival. That, that is a film that played at the Sundance Film Festival. Um and it's definitely different than the franchise it spawned.
3: I have a soft spot for those movies. I, I love how they get downright soap opera in their continuity. Like they, they don't, that movie, Those movies don't forget a thing. And in, a, in a genre where sequels traditionally wipe the memory of the previous movie and kind of reboot each entry because people are lazy, the, the Saw series' attention to where was so-and-so at this point? Oh, let's set a movie during this gap two movies ago. It gets really impressive how they bend over backwards to yeah. make everything line up. So even though it's bloody and violent, often terribly made, I, those movies are a real rejection of common horror tropes in ways that I think are really satisfying. And that's conversation for another time, honestly.
1: I was going to say, sadly, one of the best cinema experiences I've ever had was every Halloween, you know, a Saw movie would come out and they were doing these Saw marathons. Where they would show all the movies in a row, and I brought one of my friends who had not seen any of them, and we 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 sat there for I think like a whole day watching Saw movies, and uh, as much as like I don't think that franchise is a great franchise, it was it was so entertaining to to watch it, almost like a you know binge watching a Netflix show because it almost it's what you said it's, it's the ser- the serialization and rewarding the chronology and your knowledge of what happened before it is actually uh something commendable it, it, it's very interesting
3: in other words ht i think you're going to have a lot of fun just so much to dig in here
2: <laughs> Hooray!
3: yes uh, <laughs> so y- you can find
1: ht's first article on slashfilm.com we'll link it in the show notes um you can find more of my work at slashfilm on twitter and slashfilm.com you can find ht at htranbuoy on Twitter, and the Millennial Falcon uh, podcast on iTunes. You can find Jacob Hall at Jacob S. Hall on Twitter, and you can find all of us at SlashFilm.com. Please subscribe to Daily, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Um, Give us a review on iTunes. uh, Rate us. That helps us spread the word. Tell your friends. And we'll see you tomorrow.